Wonderful. Great to be with all of you again today, and um, really exciting for what's coming up here for Heritage Grace. Our evangelism conference is uh, quickly approaching, and uh, we're going to have a great time. Uh, James White's coming to preach uh, on Reformed theology for us, a 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. I couldn't think uh, of anything more fitting than that. Uh, James White is, you know, kind of an old hero of the faith of mine. Uh, for years, you know, I read White's uh, books. I listened to his uh, teachings, his lectures. I obviously uh, watched and uh, attended some of his debates. And um, uh, what a what a grace and what a providence to have our paths uh, cross. And uh, now I regard James to be one of my good friends. So I'm really blessed to to know James and and um, uh, just I love his heart for the church. Um, in the midst of everything that he does, you know, his, his heart is actually very pastoral. Uh, and so we're, we're very uh, fortunate to have him coming up here uh, next month and just all the wonderful things that are going. Also, wanted to just let you all know that the, the website for Israel has been finalized. Uh, we will be releasing that this week. You'll probably get an email uh, where you can go on there and check everything out. If you have any questions about it, uh, just let me know, and then soon we will also be having an orientation uh, dealing with our uh, trip to Israel next year uh, That's that I'm very, very excited about. And um, uh, just pray for us in that, and would you pray for, um, just pray for that. If you're not going, I really, really covet your prayers uh, that the Lord would give us um, just very clear direction with that, and uh, obviously logistically, that's a huge thing, 20-some-odd people uh, coming together to, to travel and, and, and to go uh, uh, to Israel for 11 days. I mean, that's a big deal, and so just pray for the logistics, pray for uh, people to be able to attend uh, that may not presently uh, think it's possible, um, and, and I, I just commit that to you as well, that if right now you're saying it's not possible for me to go because mainly financially or whatnot, be in prayer. You never know what God's going to do. I've seen the Lord provide in miraculous ways, and so just be in prayer for that. You never know what the Lord can do. Uh, so just looking forward to that. But um, okay, with that, why don't we pray one more time as we look at this amazing psalm in the Psalter. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for all the comforting words that we sang uh, just now, the security that we have, the blessing that we have, the cleansing that we have, and it's all because of our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his redemption. Thank you for his atoning work. And we thank you uh, today, Lord, that Jesus is with us to echo the words of the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you forever to the end of the age. And so, Lord, we're comforted by your presence to be with us. And so we ask now that you would just give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us a mind to apprehend your word so that we come with body and soul, that we worship you in mind and, 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 and heart and with all of our strength, uh, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to really see the, the beauty of the example that is set forth here in this wonderful psalm. Give us a heart like the psalmist. 
Make us men and women after God's own heart. As we understand this ultimately points us forward to the Son of God who was Himself a man after God's own heart in the highest and truest sense of the word. Give us devotion, Lord, today. Give us hearts that are devoted to You with purity and with singleness of, de- of devotion and allegiance to You, God. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a natural progression to this psalm as we've been going through this, and really a natural progression to the Psalter, if you go Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, have we stated really before, Psalm 1 really showing us the righteousness of the King, Psalm 2 conveying to us the sovereignty of the King, and Psalm 3 conveying, conveying to us what we could call the anguish of the King, the suffering of the King, and how prolific all of that is to reflect to us the, the life of our mediator, of our Lord, of the true King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. But today, our business is really with verses 4 through 6. Now, verse 3 is pivotal because it is something of a, of a link or a hinging verse that takes us from one stanza to the next. Uh, the psalmist declares that God, that the Lord is a shield about him, his glory, the lifter of his head. And now he transitions into reporting all that God has done for him, saying, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about there's anything that we learn from this psalm are dynamics of prayer, if you would. So much insight here for us in our prayer life. I was greatly rebuked as I was studying for this, uh, for this message. Just the, 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 the devotion of David to prayer, the resolution, the commitment, and the conviction that is involved in the prayer life of David is really staggering when you sort of step back to see all that's happening in this psalm. We see the resignation of David as he, instead of taking matters into his own hands, as you remember the background of the psalm, what we talked about in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18. Chapter 15 to 18 is recounting for us what has transpired in the kingdom of David as Absalom, his son who has been disgraced, comes back to Jerusalem by force and through conspiracy and intrigue. He goes in and he overthrows the kingdom of his father. He wins the hearts of the men of Israel to his side and causes David to flee. I don't think we can really understand the gravity of the trial that David is in when he wrote this. It's a great anguish of his heart. I want to point out three things here dealing with the cry of the king. And all of it is built around this sort of this indomitable confidence that the king had. Number one, then, is with the plea, the confident plea of the king because he He cries out to the Lord. That's what's going on here. I was crying to the Lord, and he says, and with my voice. Not only can God, therefore, hear our prayers, he wants to hear our prayers. 
He wants to hear the cry of his people. And David responds to God's desire to hear our prayers. God knows all of our prayers. He knows everything that you're ever going to say. He knows everything you will say before you ever say it. Matter of fact, he knows everything you're going to pray before you ever think it, before you ever start formalizing or rationalizing the thought in your mind. God knows it all together from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And this great sovereign God of ours, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, tells us, pray. In all things, pray. Be devoted to prayer. David certainly was. David was committed to a serious prayer life with God. That's amazing, isn't it? David is not a perfect man. I think we all know David's sin, the scandal of his sin, the treachery of his sin. And yet, David is identified in the book of Acts as a man after God's own heart. Because despite his own sin and misery, David was still devoted to God. He had this stubborn sort of unrelenting grip on his God. No matter what he went through, no matter what he did, no matter how bad he ever failed, something can be said of a man who keeps coming back to the Lord. That's more than what can be said for many people who encounter a trial or go through a devastating sin, a sinful pattern in their life that causes them to apostatize. When on the surface it seemed like everything was okay, everything was hunky-dory, but in reality, beneath the surface, there was a fraudulent life. Well, David's sin became public. It was, he was shamed openly. And I think that helped to dispel the darkness in his life. Probably even deepened his communion with God. That's remarkable. But this, uh, this psalm really reminds us, like I said, of the value of prayer, God's view of prayer, the fact that God delights in our prayers, the fact that God uses our prayers. And I, I want to capitalize on that for a moment here. David, if you think about it, David could have easily began to rationalize his way out of his trial. There's a plot against his life. There is, a, there is a whole rebellion that is mounting. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse and worse and worse. He's being driven further and further from the kingdom. He is forced to hide in caves. He is forced to flee. Uh, and he will not retaliate. He will not take matters into his own hands. Instead, he utilizes the weapon of prayer. Remarkable. We've already pointed out. In the account in Samuel, uh, David was a man of war. He was a mighty warrior. Uh, the, even the advisors, Abimelech and, and, and uh, the other guy, what's his name? Hushai or something like that. Both were real trusted advisors to David. They told his son Absalom, look, Absalom, you know your father that he is a valiant warrior. And you know that his men are valiant and will even cause the most valiant warriors that we have, he will cause their hearts to melt. Like, these guys are serious. These guys are men of war. They could easily take matters into their own hands. And David refused to do that. Instead, he used the weapon of prayer as his defense. Looking in from the outside, we might be tempted to think, well, how effective is that? See, we have to, in order, if we are going to be like David, those that in the moment of trial, that our first reaction is to fling to the, and, and, and to fling ourselves rather to the throne of grace, to cast ourselves down at the mercy of God, to cry out to God in our time of need. 
We, if we're going to do that, we have to believe in the efficacious nature of prayer. Do you believe in the efficacious nature of prayer? Or do you have sort of a sort of this mechanical view, this scientific view of prayer? Or do you have sort of more of a, of, of a, of a hyper-Calvinist view of prayer? You think that because God is sovereign that prayer is useless. I show you that that is not biblical thinking. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. See, because regardless of our view of prayer, it's the Bible's view of prayer that matters. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because I'll remind you that we are commanded to pray repeatedly in Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, cast all your burdens upon the Lord. He cares for you. He will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding, all in the context of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we are told, pray for, for, for all men. 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, the end of all things is near. You would think if the end of all things is near, why pray? That is not what Peter says. 1 Peter 4, 7, because the end of all things is near, he says, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, 2 Corinthians 1 shows us this efficacious nature of prayer so beautifully. I mean, to me, this is one of the best texts on this. But um, we've seen this uh, before, uh, just last week. We talked about this verse. But remember, this is where Paul is conveying to the Corinthians what a great affliction he had in Asia, that he was burdened excessively beyond strength, that despaired of life, the issue was serious, they had the sentence of death upon themselves, they, they, they were, and, and God had put them in that place why so that they would not trust in themselves but in God who raises the dead and he was confident that God was going to deliver him and then notice the dynamic look at the end of verse 10 and he will yet deliver us verse 11 you also giving a joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. See, the Apostle Paul had this prayerful worldview. The Apostle Paul viewed the sovereign will of God as using and utilizing the means of our prayer or our prayer as means to accomplish his sovereign end. This is why I often tell you, um, pray for me talking about preaching or something like that, I might request prayer. And I love getting text messages from different people in the body. You say, how's your studying going? It's going good. Uh, thank you. God bless you. I'm praying for you. That means everything. Uh, because the Apostle Paul himself relied on the prayers of the saints for the boldness and the unction that he needed to preach. Uh, let me give you an example. Colossians chapter 4 Verse 2, Colossians chapter 4, uh, ver, uh, verse 2, he says, Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's the gospel for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear 
in the way that I ought to speak. So in other words, the Apostle Paul relied on the prayers of the saints for the boldness and the unction that he needed to faithfully preach the gospel without fear. What you need to do is if you're afraid to evangelize, and if you're afraid to approach an absolute stranger with the gospel, what you need to do is this. You need to plan a date. You need to plan a time. Say, today or two more on this day, I'm going to go and I'm going to do something that I don't do because I'm not Trish Ramos. I'm going to go up to a complete stranger. I'm going to hand them a track and I'm going to tell them this has the gospel on it. Have you heard the gospel? But before you do that, have people praying for you. And I guarantee you, stand back and watch the salvation of the Lord. Yeah, the prayer should embolden us to do these kinds of things. Notice that David, when he cried out to the Lord, it was a desperate cry. He says, I cry to the Lord. And the Hebrew word here, uh, Kada literally means to summon God through pleading with God. So he was summoning God to help him. He was crying out to God for assistance, for help, for mercy. He was not too proud to cry out. When was the last time you spent the night crying out to God for help? You think of your trials, and because I'm a pastor here, I know some of the things going on in the body. That's one of the reasons why a pastor should not be a busybody, because he knows too much. So he should be tight-lipped about much of what he knows. But I know much of what goes on in our church, and I understand that there is enough going on in our church that people in our church should be spending the night crying out to God. Crying out to God means you don't murmur and complain to God. It means that you don't spend 24-7, woe is me, before God. Instead, go to God. Instead, thrust yourself down before the throne of grace and approach God in prayer. Oh, I tell you what, we've become far too professional in the Christian church. Uh, echoing what uh, uh, Dr. P John Piper wrote many years ago. Brothers, we are not professionals. And there's a chapter in there where Piper says, There is no professional crying out to God. And yet, when we see our church, not our church in here, but not only, but the church, capital C, when we see our church, when we see our culture, when we see our danger, when we see our peril, when we see the disasters that are going on everywhere, when we see, we see what's going on, when we see the, the tidal wave of technocratic craziness that's coming upon this world, I know that you see the headlines and what they're doing with robotics and what they're doing with technology and how quick and easy it is becoming for a human being to blow their brains out on technology. Where's been the weeping? Where's been the crying? Where's been the pounding on the floor? Where's been the knee? Where's been going to your knees in prayer and asking God and pleading with God for your nation? Where has that gone? It's not center stage at the most powerful, popular, prosperous, 
evangelical reformed conferences. You know what they should do? They should do next major evangelical reformed pick your heroes conference. You know what they should do? They should have on the schedule for this speaking session, we are all going to speak as we all go to our knees in prayer. We're not going to hear John MacArthur in that hour. We're not going to hear Sinclair Ferguson during that hour. You know what we're going to do? We are going to cry out to God. There's only 7,000 pastors here. How many prayer meetings during that, during that conference? Now, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. But where's been the crying? Where's been the weeping? Where's been the praying? Where has been the preparation of the heart? David was a man after God's own heart. This man had heart. You think about that. He is the king. And look at the posture that he takes. Prayer. Instead of taking up a sword, he, he took up the mantle of prayer. That alone should speak to us profoundly about our need for prayer. There is a power of prayer. No, no, no. Don't think that the, the cheesy Christian cliches. I believe in the power of prayer, brother. But if we understand the dynamic that God uses prayer as a means to accomplish His sovereign purposes and His sovereign ends, then we dignify what prayer is meant to be. If we don't pray like David... We can have our focus in the wrong place. If we are not careful to cry out, we better be careful that we do not become consumed with our trials, with our worries, with all of that. You know what happens is, as one commentator pointed out, he says that if we don't focus on God, that our trials will take upon a hypnotic power and they'll seem bigger than they are. Listen to this, Peter Craigie, incredible uh, Commentary and word biblical, he says this, the psalmist expresses confidence in God's ability to answer prayer. It's confident. He says, as the psalmist moves his eyes from the multitude of his enemies, he says, he is one who, he says, if one gazes too long upon the enemy of his might and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions and his citadels reach to the skies. The hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when one turns your gaze up toward God who is able to fight and grant victory. David could have just sat there obsessing. What is Absalom doing? What is he doing next? What's he going to do? What if he sends a delegation over here? What if the men attack at night? What if, what if this happens? And he could have just sat there and worried himself to death. We don't need an army chasing us. We do that if we get a bad bill in the mail. How am I going to pay for this? I don't know what's going on. How is he charging up that credit card? How does this work out? I thought we bought this many groceries. We bought, apparently we bought too many groceries. Groceries? <laughs> to extend the analogy a little bit, it's like your grocery bill just keeps growing if you focus on it too much. Your bills are just going to overwhelm you. Your trials, problems with the kids, oh, they're not where I want them to be. They're not as sanctified as I would like. They're not as obedient as I would like. What's that going to do? What are they going to turn out? How are they going to, they're going to steal the car one day? They're going to go carjacking? What are they going to do? Drop out of school? But before you know it, you know you've got an ex-con living in your house. We pray that doesn't happen. 
But instead of that, look up. Look at, look at what he does. He says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. See, he's reporting this to all of Israel. And he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Remarkable. Of course, holy mountain here, Mahara Kodesh, literally the Hebrew is the mountain of his holiness. In other words, it is the holy habitation of God. It is where in prayer and before the mountain of God, as it were, and beneath the shadow of Zion, all of our pretentiousness should come to an end. Because when we pray to God, the first thing we acknowledge is that our God is holy. And He, and he is exalted in His holiness. He's exalted in that holiness. Now, what's remarkable about this prayer, what he's saying? He answered me from his holy mountain. And what this suggests to us is that David's on the run. He's no longer in Zion. He's no longer in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you remember what happened in 2 Samuel. I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 15, where the priests, Zadok and the Levites, they came to David. They brought the ark to David and said, we should keep the ark with you. You're the king. What did David do? He said, no, take the ark back where it belongs. The ark, which represents God's presence, belongs in Zion. It belongs in the temple. So go back and put it back there. But what happens is this, is that by faith, David, as he cries out with his voice, he is transported, as it were, back to the ark, back to the throne of God, because the ark of God is God's throne, right? The mercy seat. It's supposed to remind us as the worshiper that the ark is representative of God who sits above the heavens and the earth is his footstool. He's exalted on high. So it's a total uh, 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 description of his presence. And therefore, by doing this, David foreshadowed, in a sense, the new covenant when the veil would be removed and that by faith we have access to Zion above us. That's the place of our hope. Why Zion? Why His holy mountain? Why is it necessary to say, He answered me from His holy mountain? Why is it necessary to recall where He answered you from? I'll say this. Where God is reminds us who He is. You are not praying to anyone less than the exalted God. King, the exalted God, God in all of His heavenly authority and power. And power changes everything. When we recognize not only who God is, but where God is, and we understand that from that holy habitation, God answers our prayers, we find help. Turn over to Psalm 34. This is a parallel psalm. This is a psalm with another serious uh, uh, trial that David was undergoing, and listen to these words, because this is what we should want. We should want to shine in faith, not soak in sorrow. He says, I, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears, 
They, referring to the humble of verse verse 2, the humble people, looked to him and they were radiant. That word just meaning they were shining, literally. Their faces will never be ashamed. See, see what's going on there? That is what's known as Hebrew and, and uh, that, that, that is a Hebrew antithetical parallelism. In other words, he is putting two thoughts right next to each other. They mean the opposite to prove a point. What's the point? When you seek God, you will shine. You will radiate with his presence. In other words, God will so gladden your heart that your face will be beaming. Beaming with Grace, beaming with life, beaming with peace, beaming with love, instead of shame. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The second thing before I can spend the whole time talking about David's confident plea, but next is the confident rest of the king. You see that so clearly, right? In verse 5, he says, I laid down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. For the Lord sustains me. Amazing. What is he saying? Notice the progression. Notice the order. You having trouble sleeping? Are you anxious? Are you restless in bed? You toss, you turn. Your mind won't shut off to the worries and the anxieties and the cares and the word-choking concerns of this world, then maybe you have not spent sufficient time in prayer. Maybe you have not spent enough time communing with God before you lay your head down. See, before you lay your head down on the the pillow, you should lay your burden down at the throne of grace. That will help you get sleep. Also, a nice, strong, hearty walk at night. That also helps. If you're like me, that's going to be with your dog. Okay, so go exercise a little bit, but make sure that when you, before you hit the pillow at night, make sure that you have spent sufficient time in prayer. How do you know that you spent sufficient time in prayer? It's when you have genuinely cast your burdens upon Him. It is not when you have uttered a token prayer to God. It is not when you have just sort of rattled down a list of requests to God, but it's communion with God. It's crying out to God. Oh, Father, please have mercy on us today. And uh, Lord, we just pray you would save our children and um, help them not to go to hell, Father. And we just pray for this nation in Jesus' name. Amen. No! God, please save My children, lest they perish. It's a whole world of difference when you have no heart in prayer, when you are just speaking perfunctory prayer, what Jesus called your lips draw near to God, but your heart is far from Him. Prayer is where our facades should come down, not up. It's not time to get fake with God. It's time to be real with God. Oh, God, forgive me today. I was so impatient with my wife. Oh, God, have mercy. And if she's kneeling there next to you or sitting there next to you besides the bed, say, sweetheart, I'm sorry. 
This is, I believe, the spirit of David's prayer. He genuinely, confidently pleaded with God. And because of that, he was able to trust God. Come what may. I have been with God. I've communed with God. I've been in the presence of God. And therefore, I can sleep at night, as the psalmist declares elsewhere, untouched by evil. Safe. Uh, Look with me at the next psalm, Psalm 4, beginning of verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You see that? When you're in despair, when you're in depression, you ever been depressed? Don't show your hand necessarily, but if you want to, I guess that's okay. If that'll bring healing, fine. You ever been depressed? You ever been downcast? You ever been discouraged? I'm so discouraged. I got so discouraged this week. I should tell you what happened to me. I spent about two and a half hours working on my sermon battling, trying to get this, and I'm doing this, and I'm trying to get the Greek right and the Hebrew right, blah, 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 blah. And I did something where one document was open. I pushed, you know, close, uh, save. No, don't save. I don't need to save that. So don't save. And I pushed the other one. Don't save. I hit it twice and get it done. Three hours down the drain, gone. I went to the city. I went on YouTube. I didn't want to bother Robert Reese. So I went on YouTube, and I tried to figure out how to recover my file. Couldn't do it. It's gone forever. See you later. Do you know how depressing that is to me? My every, listen, every minute, every hour that I spend in a chair, I have a, I have a, like a timer on my tailbone uh, because my tailbone uh, hurts because I fell and I, now it's called coccyx. This whole thing, I hate learning about this stuff. Anyway, I got a bad tailbone. So every tick, 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 tick. Think of it this way, pain, 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 pain. And eventually I got to get up. If I don't get up, I will be in misery. So I got to get up. So those two hours I sit there and sometimes I'll, the pain will gnaw away, but I can't be broken off. I have to keep going. I can't stand up. Nothing. I just got to keep going. Two hours gone. Ask my wife. There I was on the couch like a sorry sap. What happened? You'll never understand. David committed his way to the Lord. He rested. He fell asleep. In the, in the midst of a tumultuous tempest, he was able to lay his head down and rest. What does that remind you of? We are prone, like the disciples, when we are surrounded with an overwhelming trial. Teacher, do you not care that we perish? Yes, he cares. He knows it all together. They should have pulled up a they should have pulled up a pillow right next to him and went to bed too. He would have kept the boat afloat. Don't worry about it. God is going to keep your boat afloat if you just keep committing your way to Him. It's remarkable. I mean, think about sleep. The psalmist says right here in Psalm 4, verse 6, again, he says, verse, verse 7, he says, I have put gladness, You have put gladness in my heart. More than that, watch this, guys. More than when their grain and new wine abounded. You get that? See, I don't drink wine. Oh, okay, fine. I'm a Baptist too. That'll sneak up on some of you guys later. But More than when their grain and new wine abounded. You know what that means? That means more than when your circumstances seem good. More than when you have enough left over in the bank. More than when you're in that season of your life for some reason, you know, God gives you these 
Wonderful seasons where it seems like, okay, everything's going fine. We, we have enough money. The, the, you know what I mean? The job is secure. The kids are happy. The wife is happy. Happy wife, happy life. We understand that. And what this is saying is more than when all of our external circumstances are up, more than that, the Lord, He provides us a deeper gladness that can be found in our circumstances. In peace I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Isn't it remarkable that much of your life and and mine we will spend sleeping like a dog? Just laying there. I've often thought of this. I asked my mom, even when I was a baby, we know this because we're comparing me to Eden, but I hated sleep, right mom? I hated to sleep as an infant. Sleep is like a waste of time. What do you need to sleep for? I get enough sleep when I'm dead. But you know what I mean. God allows us to sleep. I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the news, and it says, Kim Jong-un is telling Donald Trump, say, wait a minute, this is not the Twilight Zone, right? No, I really read that. Okay. Wow. Kim Jong-un is now telling Donald Trump he is going to pay dearly for his words at the UN, may shoot a hydrogen bomb in the Pacific in the direction of the U.S. Sweet dreams. We're supposed to just sleep under the banner of that? We're supposed to just sleep under the awareness of that? Yes. You sleep, come what may. Absalom may come with his troops. He may come with his strongest warriors. We may be sleeping at night, and he may overthrow the camp at night. David could have worried himself to death. He went to bed. That's so beautiful, isn't it? Just the practicality of how God sustains us through the night. The confident, next is the confident peace of the king, and I will move quickly here. Notice his confidence. Now that he's cried out to God, now that he knows it's the one on the holy mountain who sustains him all through the night, verse 6, he will not fear ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. How do we take that? It says, no matter how bad we may feel we are surrounded by trial and trouble and tribulation. If we have committed our way to Him, we can rest securely. We can confidently have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So that instead of panic, we focus on piety. You see... David was more concerned about his piety than panicking about his situation. Does that describe your life? Are you so, as Jesus said, be concerned about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else can be added to you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. God will take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, be so spiritually minded that you are not so consumed by the things around you because when you're so consumed about the things around you, brothers and sisters, we understand how it works. You can't serve two masters. You can't be devoted to your trials. You can't be consumed with anxiety and at the same time sing, Hallelujah, Jesus. Your peace is so surpassing. You can't. 
You've got to lay it down. You've got to give it to Him. The peace of God that surpasses understanding, we understand this, is both qualitative and quantitative. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that first is the quality, then the quantity. First, it's the definitive peace of God through reconciliation. Then, it is the progressive peace of God through sanctification. But I'm here to say that peace has to be defined this way because, you know, we're not offering people peace. Just peace, right? You start going around, you start advertising, you know, like a lot of churches do. Hey, having trouble in your marriage? We have a service for that, right? No, 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 we're not here to... Meet people's felt needs first. We'll work on your, you know, you got a dysfunctional house. You know, the church can help you with that. No, no, no. First, we have to deal with the definitive peace of God. First, we have to understand that before God delivers us from the wrath of man, He has to deliver us from His own wrath. Jonathan Edwards reminds us of the glorious way of peace with God. He says, what rest does it give to the weary soul to see itself delivered that the foundation of its anxieties and fears are wholly removed and that God's wrath ceases, that it is brought into a state of peace with God, that there is no more occasion for the fear of hell, but that it is forever safe. How refreshing it is to the soul to be once delivered of that which was much what which was so much of its trouble and terror and to be eased of that which was so much of its burden that's the burden of the wrath of god after that is removed then we experience wave upon wave of god's peace Ultimately, the king is leading us to yet another transition in the psalm, the transition towards total vindication. When he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about, he is preparing us for total conquest, total victory, total vindication by God. How does it relate? How does it apply? How does David, being surrounded by thousands of people, literally the whole kingdom against him, which this is obviously hyperbolic language, but he's utilizing it in a way to just convey the notion that he's surrounded. But how does it apply to us? Again, 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 you and I are not surrounded by, you know, troops. And turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. So I think there we have the same thought. See, at least the same germ of thought, the same strain of thought. We don't need to be surrounded by ISIS. I said that before. We don't need to be surrounded by, you know, some sort of cultural persecution necessarily to experience this. It covers all the above. Things within, things without. Things present, things future. You know this verse, and if you don't, you should. He says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Can't you hear that rolling off the mouth of David right now in this psalm? If God is for me, Absalom, who cares? If God is for me, who can be against? He could go enlist the Canaanites if he wants. Who cares? 
he who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. You see how these great redemptive Christological realities should affect you practically every single day of your life. Have you thought about that? The exaltation of Christ brought down into Monday morning rush hour. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about he is at God's right hand. So what if I'm going to be late? Well, don't suffer for your own foolishness, but you know what I mean. Don't despair in your trials. Who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. And oh, the Apostle Paul knew this so well. We were considered sheep, as to be, sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor, present, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you move someone who believes this? And if you are moved easily by your trials, you don't believe this. How do you shake someone who is, has an unshakable grasp on what Paul just said? You can't. You can say anything in the world, but if this is your constitution, if this is the way that you think, if this is your worldview, you will persevere. This is nuclear strength for sanctification. This is Christian maturity on steroids right here. I gotta wake you up somehow. I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for adjectives that will. Oh. Spurgeon said, We need not fear a frowning world when we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. When we know that God hears our cry, the world could be as bleak and dark and depressing as it wants to be. We need not fear it. Okay, so every single one of these messages I've been trying to connect directly to Christ. And how does this connect to Christ? How does it connect to Christ other than to say that like David and even more than David to a greater degree than David, we, we sung about the true and greater Adam. Now we sing about the true and greater King. Jesus was himself a man of God. Jesus was himself a man after God's own heart. And Jesus was himself surrounded by a throng of enemies. Not just that. They weren't just, they weren't just human enemies. But Jesus had everything, the principalities and the powers. He, he had spi- the spirit beings of the demon world taunting and mocking him and waiting for him to die. And yet, beneath it all, like David, Jesus says, Father, into your hands. That's the way we should close every single day of our lives. Right before we hit the pillow, Father, 
into your hands. I commit everything. Father, we pray that now. We ask that by faith that we would not fall for the lies. That more obsessed than of the kingdom of God that we should be, that more attention should be given to our trials, our worries, our tribulations, our concerns, our infirmities that I know many in this room are dealing with crazy health problems that nobody knows how to solve. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, may we say with Christ, and like David, into Your hands we commit our spirit. We trust You. You are a faithful, sovereign Creator. And we trust You in the midst of perplexing things that look to overwhelm us at times. Help us, O God. Help us to model this for our children. Help us to model this for the believers next to us. Help us to be a model. Help us to model this for our spouses. Help us to model trust, dependency, reliance on God. Give us the strength to do this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.